In John chapter 3, Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who was a religious expert, and so he used a language and he used ideas that were very familiar with Nicodemus. In John 4, just a chapter later, we see him speaking with a Samaritan woman, and he doesn't take the same approach. He never changes his message. God's word is God's word. But he understood both of these people well enough to understand what was interesting to them and what would open the door. So I think it's learning about other people so we can know what are some of those keys that God can use to help open the door so we can minister. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Pleasure to have you stop by, friend, on this program. You know, once a month we get together with a professor from Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, a great work in our city training men and women for the gospel ministry. These folks are serving all over the world. And today we welcome Dr. Matt Akers, who is the Associate Dean of Doctoral Programs, Assistant Professor of Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, Greek, and biblical counseling. Dr. Akers, they keep you busy. Pretty busy, one day at a time. (laughs) And that's not to mention that you also are the director of the Hispanic Institute. You currently serve as the pastor. You have to help me because my Spanish is very rusty. (laughs) Okay, it's La Iglesia Bautista Nueva Vida. So New Life Baptist Church, and we meet in Kirby Woods Baptist Church. Okay, which is just right here down the street. That's right. You're close to home. That's right. (laughs) thankful that you could take time to stop by and really to share about your responsibilities and some of the insights and things that a professor does. And your focus really, in many regards, you're equipping the saints at the seminary, but you're also equipping the saints at the Hispanic church that you pastor. Right. And it's a blessing to be involved at the Hispanic church as well as Mid-America. You know, one of the greatest blessings we could ever have is training people to learn how to love God more and to love others more. And so it's been a blessing for me to be able to be involved in both of those ministries. When did you realize your dreadful condition without Christ and your need to surrender to him? I don't think people realize sometimes their status without being in Christ. It is a dreadful place to be. That's absolutely right. It took me until around 12 or 13 years to realize that, and I grew up in church in Missouri. In fact, I don't remember, but my mom tells me that I was born on a Thursday, and Sunday they had me in the services, and so I started early. And uh, my great-grandfather had been the pastor of this church, and so I grew up thinking that I was okay. I would misunderstood the message, but I knew something was missing. And so I thought, well, maybe I need to read the Bible more. Maybe I need to pray more. Um, What am I doing wrong? And I had no peace until I finally realized at 12 that I had no peace because without Christ, There is no peace. I was born condemned and that Jesus needed to free me from my sin. And so it took me a long time to come to that conclusion and realize that. And some people, Dr. Akers, live their entire life sadly and never realize that. That's right. Or are willing to admit that, right? Right. And maybe they've had many times that they've been presented the gospel and given an opportunity to respond in faith to what Christ has done for us. But Sometimes the heart just doesn't want to break or surrender to that. That's true, and sometimes we want to help God. I think that was one of my challenges. I wanted to help God with my salvation, not realizing that I was completely helpless. And it wasn't until I understood that and acknowledged that that the Lord saved me from my sin. Well, how did God direct you into the ministry? Around 16 or 17 years old, I sensed that the Lord was moving me into the ministry. And uh, again, I guess... I'm kind of stubborn. It took me a little while to surrender to that. 
And so finally, uh, one of my friends, as well as the pastor of the church where I was attending, said, you know, if this is what God wants you to do, you need to be obedient, and you won't find any peace until you do that. So I learned again at 16 or 17 (laughs) around that time that there's no peace as long as we're not serving God as he calls us to serve. Well, I love the picture there. Finding peace when we surrender to God, and then finding peace when we, well, again, surrendering to the service of a call on your life. You wouldn't have to necessarily be a pastor or seminary professor. You could be a plumber, but doing what you're called to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. God has a perfect plan for us. He's given us gifts to accomplish that plan, and we need to be faithful. And all of us, whether we're pastors or, like you say, if somebody becomes a plumber, we need to do it for the glory of God, as Paul said, whatever we do. Yeah. Uh, the language has come natural for you. We've got Hebrew. We've got Greek. <laughs> I mean, you, you speak Spanish. Apparently, um, that's one of the things that I don't know that it comes easy, but I'm interested in. And for some reason, uh, I tend to remember words when I'm, when I'm learning. And so uh, I think the Lord definitely was equipping me to be able to uh, – teach in Spanish and also teach Greek and Hebrew. Right. Well, you were forced to learn how to speak Spanish fluently because your father-in-law said, if you're going to marry my daughter, who you met, Glinda, who is from El Salvador. Now, did you meet Glinda in El Salvador or here in the U.S.? We met in college in Conway, Arkansas, Central Baptist College, and she had come to the States as a 14-year-old. Her parents came a lot earlier when she was basically a baby, uh, because of the Salvadoran Civil War. Uh, But she was finally able to join them when she was 14. And uh, after graduating from high school in Houston, she moved to Conway to study in the same school where I was. And so that's when I realized that I should have paid more attention to my Spanish teacher in high school (laughs) that said, I will use this one day. And I said, I'll never use Spanish. (laughs) And God had a way of having a little fun there with you, right? (laughs) He did. That's right. And then when I asked Linda to marry me, Her dad said, if you want to marry my daughter, you have to learn Spanish. And he insists he was joking now, but it didn't seem like a joke at the time. So your Spanish wasn't fluent at all when you met Glenda? Not at all. Just a few words because, again, I didn't do very well in high school in Spanish. And so I pretty much had to start from the beginning. Yeah. Now, Conway, Arkansas is close to a beautiful state park, and I was just, my mind went blank there. Petty Jean? Petty Jean. Right. Thank you so much. Did you spend any time at Petty Jean? We uh, spent quite a bit of time in college. That was one of the places that we'd go on the weekends and hike and spend time with friends, and so uh, it's a beautiful place. Oh, my goodness. And they've renovated, I know, some right. of the, the cabins and the lodge there, and I haven't been back since they've done that, but that hike down to the waterfalls is just incredible. It really is. It's a pretty area. Well, we said that we would stay in the cabin. We couldn't afford it as college students, and um, we've not been back in a while, but uh, we've got to go check that out now that they've renovated. I'll tell you, I would like to do that myself. And I remember there's a nice restaurant there with the glass windows overlooking that mountain view. Oh, that's right. And I remember having one of the tastiest hamburgers there and just enjoying God's creation, you know, there at Pettigene State Park. Um, What do you appreciate most about the Hispanic culture? I appreciate about the Hispanic culture the love that they have for others. I've seen people who barely known others who'd had needs, and what they did was they helped them in their time of need, barely knowing these people. So I think it's the ability to slow down, which is difficult for us to do in our culture. We're always going too quick, 
And it's the ability to slow down, to live in the moment, and to see the people around them and to love them. Wow, that's a really good word there, Dr. Akers. You know, over the course of the next decade, demographic projections estimate that the Hispanic population will increase by 30%, up from the 2016 figure of 57 million to 74 million people by 2030. How should the church meet and welcome this population growth? I think there are several things that we can do. First of all, one good thing to remember is that not only does God send us to the world, as we see in the Great Commission, but God is now, in this moment, sending the world to us. And there are people from all over the world, we have an opportunity to love them with the love of Christ. And so we need to be more aware of those who are in our neighborhoods, and I think we can take a cue from the Hispanic population and slow down and breathe and see who's around us and learn to love them in practical ways and get to know them. Also, I always challenge everybody to as much as possible to learn Spanish because that not only is going to be helpful in jobs as we move forward, bilingual people are in much demand in virtually every type of job, but it also gives us an opportunity to speak to people in their native language. And so several times I've gone up to somebody who didn't expect that I spoke Spanish I've spoken Spanish with them, and, and they thought that was odd or strange, hearing Spanish from my mouth, but it opened the door for me to ask you know, who they were, where they're from, uh, what their spiritual state is, and so it's, it's kind of a door opener. Yeah. Speaking those heart languages can really help neutralize often these relationships. Maybe it seems awkward, you know? That's right, and I made a millionaires in Spanish, as <laughs> I've learned, and I've said things that were completely ridiculous, and... I've learned to laugh at myself, and so did everybody else who heard me. But they've really taken that as something endearing. Although there are all these heirs, this person cares about me and wants to learn the language that's my language. And so I would also say uh, don't be too hard on yourself as you're learning. Everybody's going to make mistakes, but people do notice when you care enough about them to try. Yes. We talk about this population growth that we see in the United States, and I don't think that most non-Hispanic Americans realize that the Hispanic population is on path to becoming the largest ethnic group in the United States, even larger than the Anglo population. And I believe that's very possible. That's right. You know, I was uh, a missionary back in the mid-1990s, and I know when we left the U.S. and traveled to the island of Guam, I didn't really notice that much of a population in the Hispanic people group here in our city. But when we moved back in 2000, boy, I saw it was obvious that there was a population here that I didn't realize it had come. That's right. We began with many people from Mexico, and to that, eventually we added Hondurans and Guatemalans. Those are the three largest populations. But now we're noticing a lot of people from South America, so virtually every nation of Spanish speakers is now represented from Central America, from Mexico, and South America. So it's just amazing how many people have decided to call Memphis home. What would you say are some of the uh, mistakes many American church planters make in their attempts to reach the Hispanic population? I think one mistake that can be made is contextualization. And I'll give an example. In John chapter 3, Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who was a religious expert, And so he used a language and he used ideas that were very familiar with Nicodemus. In John 4, just a chapter later, we see him speaking with a Samaritan woman, and he doesn't take the same approach. He never changes his message. God's word is God's word. But he understood both of these people well enough to understand 
what was interesting to them and what would open the door. So I think it's learning about other people so we can know what are some of those keys that God can use to help open the door so we can minister. So it's not only knowing the language, but it's understanding the culture, it's appreciating the food, it's spending time with people. You know, One thing I had to learn is um, I'm from a place in Missouri where if we start at 11, we start at 11. If we finish at 12, we finish at 12. And I pastor a place where now we say that we start at 11 so that we can start at 1130. We, we start when we start. We finish when we finish. And a wise missionary from South America told me once, those who are flexible will not be bent out of shape. And so it's surrendering some of those preferences. Could you stop and say that one more time? I need to hear that today. Absolutely. It is those who are flexible will not be bent out of shape. And it's so important, yes. and it has helped me hundreds of times to remember there were preferences that I had. They're not biblical preferences. They're just cultural preferences. And if they become stumbling blocks, I need to surrender them, and I need to be flexible in other cultures. And so that was that was a really helpful lesson to me. Does the church planting among Hispanics require more than just offering a Spanish-speaking service on Sunday? Because I know a lot of churches, they want to have a ministry to the Hispanic community, which is a great way to try to reach people. So maybe they'll find a pastor, a Spanish-speaking pastor, and say, you know, you can use the church facility at a certain time. I mean, do you see that to really be effective? Not that that can't be an effective ministry itself, but is the church tries to engage ministering to Hispanic people. Do you think it's more than just doing that? I think it's a both and. And I'm very thankful for English-speaking churches that open their doors because many Hispanics come from a lower socioeconomic background and, and they're not able as quickly to afford their own place. And so it's a really big boost to have somewhere where they can meet. But it's also doing life together outside of the walls. And so it's not just a, an hour, two, three hour a week kind of deal, but it is spending quality time with people, eating together, fellowshipping, ministering. And so it's it's learning to do just what the early Christians did in the book of Acts, and that is to do life together. Yeah. And that's the way Jesus did it, didn't Absolutely. he? With his disciples. Well, I was wondering, is there any unique distinctives pastoring and planting an Hispanic congregation? I would say one is the cultures involved. A lot of people assume that Hispanic peoples are relatively monolithic. And when you have people from so many different countries that speak Spanish differently and use different words and have different cultures and customs, it would be like somebody, for example, from the United States, pastoring people from Wales and Scotland and from other places where English is spoken and to try to bring everybody together, but to assume because we speak English, we're all the same, and we're really not. That was actually one of my next questions, talking about the monolithic culture. As you said, Central American Hispanics see themselves different than Mexican Hispanics, even like we do, build up different prejudice from different parts of South or Central America or Mexico, just like Americans do. That's right. I was in a Bible study once. Before we began, there were two men from two different countries who were speaking, and I overheard. And one of them said, why do people from your country treat us so badly? And the other one said, well, I don't see that at all. I think that you all treat us badly, which wasn't a good way for us to start our fellowship group. (laughs) And we had to step in and, and disarm that. But there are in any people groups this idea of the outsider, the person that's not like us. And when you have 
dozens of cultures. Even in one country, you might have dozens of different cultures and ways to speak. That's going to be inevitable, that yeah. there are going to be some kind of issues. And, and I think that's why, for example, Paul spoke so much in places like Corinth, which was a hodgepodge of people groups, and that's also where they had so much conflict that he had to speak into that situation and say, let's not lose sight of the fact that, yes, we're still members of our cultures, but we're also one in Christ. We are unified and we're diversified, so let's celebrate our unity and understand that we're family members and allow that to help us to interact for God's glory together in loving ways. Oh, that's a good word there, Dr. Akers. You know, I was just reading recently, and I was trying to think before you came in the studio of the reference. I think it's in Acts where it references the fact that God establishes nations in their borders and boundaries that he establishes, you know, all for his glory. And I know I'm paraphrasing something horrible here. You're a professor. Do you know the reference I'm thinking of? Uh, that's the reference, I think, when Paul was on Mars Hill and he was discussing yes. with them. And there's an amazing reference there. Uh, that genetics just, you know, in the last few decades has come to understand. He said that we all came from one blood, that is, Adam, uh, and people recently have realized, studying the genome, yes, that's true, we all have the same ancestor. Uh, but Paul understood that because he understood Scripture, and so it's taken study uh, 2,000 years to catch up to what Paul said <laughs> 2,000 years ago, and that is that we are one. So God has established these boundaries, these barriers, but he also, in Christ, passes over those barriers to make us one in him. Yes, and we are. I love that, the fact that we are one in Christ. As an assistant professor of Old Testament plus teaching Hebrew, you've studied the Old Testament fairly well. Give us some of your favorite Old Testament passages to study in their connection to the New Testament. One book that I think is overlooked a lot of times is the book of Judges. And so it speaks well to the New Testament era as well as the present era that when we don't walk in the way that God wants us to walk and we don't love God and love others as we should, there's going to be problems. And so um, there are also many passages that obviously in every book speak of Jesus, and there are prophecies and promises. And so one character that we see in the book of Judges who is mysterious is referred to as the angel of God. And in Hebrew, that's actually the messenger. So messengers aren't always angels. Right. They're people who come from God. And so the messenger of God has all the characteristics of Christ. And so that's probably a reference to Jesus that even when there are many problems in society, and God feels far away, he's not. And so that's one promise that we have as we look at the book of Judges. One of my absolute favorites is in the book of Joshua, when Joshua, outside of Jericho, sees the man of God and says, are you for us or against us? <laughs> and the man says, neither A nor B, I'm for God. And what's interesting is he says he's the captain of the Lord's armies, which we know in the New Testament is Jesus. In Hebrew, the word for Jesus is Yeshua, and that's also Joshua's name. So Joshua meets Jesus. Yeshua right, meets right. the real Yeshua. And so he learns more about how it's important for us to follow God's agenda instead of setting our own. That is a great insight there. I like those analogies and those applicable stories that relate to us and point to Jesus, which is what the Scripture does. And when you talk about studying the Old Testament, you know, some people can get bogged down, I guess, and overwhelmed by the book of Leviticus. And so... How can the average layperson better study the Old Testament? 
I think it's better to start at the beginning. One important book to understand is Genesis, because Genesis shows us how we became sinners, it shows us what's wrong with the world, and it also shows us through many symbols who we need, and that's Jesus. And uh, we need to start with books such as that, and there are other books uh, such as Isaiah comes to mind, which is important to understand that even in difficult times, God is faithful, and He calls us to be faithful. And also, we need to enjoy studying. A lot of people go to the Old Testament in dread, or they think also that uh, perhaps we just need to study more of the New Testament. Old sounds obsolete. Yeah. I do like what one Old Testament theologian called the Old Testament. That is the Older Testament. <laughs> yeah. So it's not obsolete. It just happens to be older yeah. than the New Testament. And just as God has given us two eyes to see more in depth, he's given us the Old Testament and the New Testament to see more clearly. So we have to right. look at both of these together. And, and there's some younger generation today I'm hearing where they get confused when they look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and they see how God dealt with certain nations and how they were obliviated, you know? Right. And so in the New Testament, it seems like we're seeing a God of love. Is this the same God? One of my favorite illustrations to illustrate that that is the same God, and we do see a loving God in the Old Testament, a God of wrath in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, we see both of those characteristics, is what somebody asked Billy Sunday once, who was an evangelist of the early 20th century. Uh, he said to Billy Sunday, he said, you're preaching some really difficult passages, uh, some really strong passages. You're rubbing the fur on the cat's back the wrong way. To which Billy Sunday wisely said, if the cat will turn around, his fur won't be rubbed the wrong way. God doesn't change, but based on our orientation toward him, we can experience his love or his wrath. It's not God that changes, it's us. It's how we change in orientation to him. We can either repent and walk with him, or we can rebel against him, and we're dealing with the same God who reacts differently based on our orientation toward him. And I think, too, Dr. Akers, we want to create in our mind who we think God should be right. and how we should relate to him instead right. of following what the Bible teaches us. Right. For example, how were people in the Old Testament saved? People in the Old Testament, we find as we study, are saved in the same way, looking forward to the Messiah just as we look backwards. We find in the New Testament that as far as the Father was concerned, that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. This wasn't his plan B or his plan C, and he doesn't have to move through time like we do day by day. He's eternal, and so that plan was firmly established. And if people could have been saved differently in the Old Testament, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. It would yeah. have been a sacrifice that wasn't necessary. But we see in these images of, for example, in Leviticus, the sacrifices, not that the blood of animals saves, as Hebrew tells us, but they're pictures of how horrible sin is, the destruction of sin, and also the wrath that Jesus took upon himself to give us hope. Oh, that's a good word. Could you explain why it makes sense that all who are in relationship with God will live forever? It makes sense because God is absolutely faithful to his word. And Paul tells us in Romans that no one or no circumstance can separate us from God's love. So thankfully, we're not holding salvation in our hands. God holds us in his hands, and nobody can pry us from his hands. And since God is absolutely consistent and perfect and holy, and it also tells us in the New Testament that what the Holy Spirit began in us, he will finish and will perfect us so that we are presentable to the Lord, 
on that day we stand before him, we have great assurance that he loves us, will continue to love us, and will continue to transform us into his image. Like you said a moment ago, many times we try to create a Jesus in our image, and the whole point of Scripture is not to create him in our image, but to be transformed to his image. Oh, well. Dr. Matt Akers, I have really enjoyed this time together with you. Thank you for uh, sharing with us. And about your congregation now, when do you meet? Where do you meet? If we have those, you would have to be part of the Hispanic community to attend your church. But maybe if you have an interest, do you have classes where people can learn how to speak Spanish through your church? At the moment, we don't. But I do teach in the Hispanic Institute at Mid-America, and we do have English speakers come in to hear two and a half hours of Spanish taught to learn how it's done, and they progressed in their Spanish. And so we do have some avenues at Mid-America for people that want to be in that atmosphere. And we do have English speakers also preparing to go on missions trips or who want to learn English or who who want to learn Spanish who do join us. We meet on the second floor of Kirby Woods Baptist Church roughly 11 o'clock, but Spanish time. So we begin when we begin. Yeah. I used to live on the island of Guam, so it was always island time. I totally understand, you know, the the difference. Now, if folks would like to entertain more thought of something we've discussed with you, is there a way they could reach out to you? Certainly. Um, If anybody has any questions, you could reach me at my email address. That is M-A-K-E-R-S. That's makers. Makers at M-A-B-T-S dot E-D-U. That's my MidAmerica email address. And you can also check out MidAmerica's website to get that email address if I said it too quickly, and so I'd be happy to speak with you if you have any questions. Dr. Matt Akers, thank you, my dear brother. Thanks for stopping by and sharing your heart and also giving some insight into the ministry of Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. I appreciate this time together. Thank you so much. Well, friend, I hope you will discover more about Mid-America. The address is mabts.edu. There is the seminary, there's the college at Mid-America, a great educational institute. Plan it firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ and His Word, and I encourage you to find out more at mabts.edu. Well, that's all the time we have this time with the professors from Mid-America Seminary. Next month, we'll meet a new professor. Hope you'll join us for that. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. And when the nutrients that God makes are depleted from your body, you will die. And I have no idea how long that's going to be. I have a tendency to overwork myself because I want to prove I'm worthy of people's love and attention. That's definitely a trap that I'm struggling with. The cutest little carousels with... Um, Swimming well, fish? The, well, no, they're the... Seahorses. <laughs> Seahorses! Seahorses! <laughs> think yes. of that, it just left my mind. So what I had in my living room over this series of meetings were highly functioning within the church culture, biblical illiterates. So critical race theory is a a way to destroy this country, destroy the family, and destroy the church. Mid-South Viewpoint is people telling God-sized stories from all walks of life. Listen Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 p.m. on AM640 or anytime with the Bot Radio Network mobile app or on Spotify and iTunes podcast.